0: All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, as always, I'm very thankful to be able to worship together and share God's word with you. Uh, if you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. My name is Sam. I am uh, one of the pastors here on staff. We want to welcome you. Again, our church, we just finished a five-week series on the importance and the uh, I guess almost the spiritual necessity of being in the Word of God, and again, it's been so encouraging. Uh, if you were part of this series, we kind of summed up, hey, the Bible is not just for the sake of reading it, but it's supposed to grow you and shape you into the, the image of Christ more specifically so that you grow in your love for God and others. So periodically, kind of to make us not forget, don't be surprised if up here I ask the question like, hey, more, more so than are you reading your Bible? Like, how's your love for God these days? How's your love for others these days because again that should be a natural fruit of being in the word and so that's something that uh we're doing together and if you're new to that we have a bible reading plan you can jump on at any time and feel free to catch up we, w- we encourage you to do that and then the welcome- Welcoming lunch again is going to be next week. Uh, I know there's a few individuals that I've met personally, or I'm aware that it's been a you know, couple weeks or even some months. And this is, again, the best opportunity to, in a smaller setting, get to meet some members, the staff, and hear about our church more. So we do want to encourage you. Please do sign up. So we need to get a head count. And that's going to be next Sunday here on campus. So as Pastor Tom announced, and as you can see, obviously, we are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper today. And if you grew up in the church like me, uh, the Lord's Supper or, or communion, as it's also called, it's probably something you're familiar with, right? And just by virtue of if you walked in here and you saw that and that doesn't shock you, it shows you probably have some degree of being churched. And most of us probably know that it is something that's supposed to be important, right? In the same way that we know, hey, Bible reading should be important, prayer is important. Communion is probably important. But I don't know if you recall in this series, or maybe it's your first time hearing, one of the things we emphasize through the series on reading scripture is this. Just because you believe something is important does not mean it will impact your life. Or that it will form you in the way that it's supposed to. For example, I think working out is very important. And I am the unhealthiest I've ever been. Because I don't practice it. But I'm very genuine in my belief. And so in the same way, so many of us grew up thinking that belief is the king of Christianity. That so long as I'm earnest in my belief of Jesus, that should be what it is. And yet you have not been formed into the image of Christ at all. Now, don't get me wrong here. This is not a workspace you are in charge. But at the same time, the Bible is clear that those who follow Jesus, there is a fruit that shows up in your life. So the lack of fruit shows, oh, maybe belief is not enough, but it is the first step towards now what we've been talking about since pretty much November, you need to put that belief into practice. That if you truly understand it, it would do something to you and it will form you in the way that it's supposed to. Now, did you know there's only two things that Jesus explicitly commanded the church to practice? Granted, we did a whole series on practicing the way of Jesus, and those are more personal discipleship things, right? Like like fasting or solitude, those are things you do kind of in your own walk with Jesus. But for the Gather church, there's literally only two things that Jesus said you need to practice. One is baptism, and the other is what we're talking about today, the Lord's Supper. So at the very least, that should show you, it's important, right? It's not a long list. And throughout church history, the church, I would say, appropriately valued these two things in the way that they would discuss it and practice it and make sure that it's something that was important in the church. But today, I would argue, we've kind of gone the other way, where these two Very, very fundamental, important things that Jesus explicitly commands the church are probably at an all-time low in terms of the worth and value that it has in the modern church. How do I know this? If I surveyed everyone here who calls themselves a Christian and I said, do you think the Lord's Supper is important? I'm actually positive everyone most will say, yeah, I think it's important. At the same time, I'm also sure that most of our members don't realize it's been over three months since we even practiced it. Did you realize that? And as you realize that, the deeper question is, does that even matter to you? Do you even care? Right? So fundamentally contrasting is I believe it's really important. Oh, but we haven't done it in three months. Oh, well. And I think that's just kind of the modern approach to these uh, ordinances. And at our church, um, we are in a season, and I am personally in a season, where we really want to combat and fight against the autopilot religious stream and culture that so many of us have grown up in. And how are we doing that? We are asking very basic but pressing questions like, you say you follow Jesus. What does that actually look like? Like, how are you actually following Jesus right now? You say the Bible is important. Do you actually even read it? Do you know what the Bible says? And in the same way, I hope to dig a little deeper on the significance of you say the Lord's Supper is important, but do you even know what it is? And not only that, I want to lay a foundation not just for today, but moving forward that our church can be a little closer to what the Bible intends the Lord's Supper to be in the way that it shapes and forms us as believers and as a church. So if you have your Bibles or your programs, uh, turn me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, again, it's in your programs. And just the word, again, we are officially moving to CSB. So if you are going to pull it up on your phones or your apps, we're going to be reading from the CSB translation. So don't be surprised if it sounds a little different. Make sure you're on that version. And at our church, uh, as we open God's word, if we can, let's all rise together as we believe God is speaking and moving and present through the preaching and hearing of his word. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. This is the reading of God's word, Apostle Paul talking to the church in Corinth. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then it is not the Lord it is not to eat the Lord's supper. For at the meal each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, as we open your word and we consider uh, just the important and pivotal practice that you've commanded to your church when it comes to the Lord's Supper, give us fresh eyes. And give us hearts and ears to hear uh, the truths you have to say to us individually and as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So obviously, if you didn't know, uh, today is Super Bowl Sunday, right? Classic all-American holiday. It is one of the greatest idols that the church faces every time, right? To be honest, uh, if you're curious, like, oh, wow, this church is so godly. They planned a meal on, on the Super Bowl Sunday. The reality is Tom and I are not football fans, so we did on accident, Right? So I'm going to spin it and say, actually, it was intentional, you know, to like challenge you. But we actually, we didn't know. So we're like, oh my gosh, it's Super Bowl Sunday. And other than people who are actually like fans of football, most people don't even realize it's Super Bowl Sunday till like a few days before, like maybe a lot of you. You're like, oh my gosh, it's Super Bowl. And this is around the time where you see either bandwagon fans or people raise the common question like, who's playing? (laughs) Who's playing again? What's going on? At the same time, Most people will still celebrate and gather Super Bowl, even though they're not football fans, even though they could care less about the outcome. Not because of the sport, but because of the food. Amen? I did a quick search. Super Bowl Sunday is the second largest food consumption day in America. Second to obvious, you might guess it, Thanksgiving. Right? Uh, Fun little fact, if you didn't know, uh, Super Bowl Sunday, uh, 1.2 billion wings are going to be consumed today. Right? R.I.P. chicken. It's just a day of feasting and eating. And I would argue Thanksgiving in itself as well, in the same way as Super Bowl, even though people have very fond ideas towards Thanksgiving, I would say the average person is not because of what Thanksgiving actually is. Like when it's, hey, do you know the meaning and history of Thanksgiving? Most people are probably like like pilgrims, right? But why? Because it's a celebration gathered around food, so that's what makes it so pivotal and memorable. It's a gathering centered around a special meal, and the simple reality I'm trying to say is that food and meals—they're not just this survival thing in our lives. They play very formative and impactful roles, and I think God designed it this way. For example, there's a reason why many people understand the idea that I love mom's cooking. Now, I thought about this very logically. It's impossible that every mom is actually a good cook. Okay, like you might think so. I just don't think it's possible. So 99% of it, when they say, I love mom's cooking, it's not that the food itself is really the best, but it means something deeper. It represents something to you, that special meal. Another example is, have you realized food is a holistic experience? It engages almost all of the senses. You see it, you smell it, you touch it, you taste it. That's why some of you guys don't know what you did last week, but you can remember the first time you ate a really good Mexican taco. Or the first time you ate really good Korean barbecue or sushi. Why? Because it was a formative, all-encompassing experience for you, right? That's what food and meals can do. More than food itself, meals are formative because it's not hard to argue. Meals connect people. In high school, um, there was something called International Food Fair where basically all the students from all different cultures, they would have their parents cook their traditional meals. Now, I went to Sunny Hills High School, which is like 80% Korean, so it wasn't that international, but still, the 20% that were, whether they were from Mexico or India or the Middle East or wherever, we all gathered in the center of the school, and it was a connecting experience where even though we don't have that much in common, our food and cultures were unifying as we shared a meal together. That's why if you go on a mission trip and you see someone that you have nothing in common with, but you just eat their food and sit at table with them, you feel a connection. There's something that goes on there. And lastly, more than the food itself, we often remember and experience meals not so much by what we eat, but by who we eat with this has always been the case. This was the case back then where who you ate with or who you wanted to eat with had social implications, economic implications. The easiest example of this is that at weddings, there's two important questions people ask. What's the food and where's the seating chart? Who am I sitting with? Because that's going to, experience, that, that's going to alter my experience of the food. And even married couples or engaged couples, you know, the creation of the seating chart is extremely political. <laughs> Who's going to sit close to us? Who's going to sit near each other? Why? Because it matters. Now, I share all that because most of us, we don't realize or we forget, especially if you've been churched, the Lord's Supper at its bare bones definition is a meal. It's a meal. It's a feast. And as followers of Jesus, it is the most important meal that you will partake in for the rest of your life. More than when your first date with your boyfriend or girlfriend. More than the meal that your in-laws and your parents will have when they first meet more than any other special celebratory anniversary meal, the Lord's Supper is the most important meal, and yet for many of us, it is the least valued and least understood meal as people claim to follow Jesus. So we need to understand the Lord's Supper, the way it originated and how it was practiced is vastly different than the way we even do it today, okay? And so to get a more robust foundation for this sermon, there's gonna look at three things regarding the Lord's Supper. Number one, so what is the Lord's Supper, Okay. Uh, not just definition, but a picture of it two what 's the wrong way to practice it that Paul was addressing in the book, a book of First Corinthians? and thirdly, what is the proper way and also some practical applications? So number one, what is it? So again, when I see these things, uh, I remember as a, growing up as a kid, this is kind of what I saw in my experience of it, where every now and then, without anybody telling me, I would see elders dressed in suits, they put on these white gloves, and they would go around passing these nicely cut Square pieces of bread and small little cups of grape juice around the room. No one's telling me what's going on. I'm just a kid sitting there. And I just kind of deduced based off the mood and vibe of the room, it seems really serious. It seems very private because nobody's talking. Everyone is kind of having that me and God moment. And third, I wasn't allowed to take it for some reason. Right? That was a formative experience for me. That bread looked really good. It's like a pound cake. So I tried to take it. I slapped my hand. You can't have it. They didn't even tell me why. Right? Like, talk about, like, religious scarring. Right? Like, okay, I guess I'm not good enough. As I got a little older, I started to pick up the basic definition that I would argue probably most of us have when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Which is, it seems to be an important time to remember the broken body and blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of my sins. Right? Represented by the bread and the cup. Amen to that. 100%. And that's literally what Paul says, right? In verse 23-25. So there's nothing wrong with that. So amen to that. The unfortunate reality, though, for many of us who have experienced the Lord's Supper is that we've experienced it as this kind of 10-minute tack-on addendum to worship that is kind of just like a little supplement to just the normal routine of our religious duties. And that's so different from how Jesus practiced it with his disciples and how it was originally understood. Let me give you a little context. Back then, there were no church buildings. You guys understand that. There was no large corporate gathering where they would gather. So as Acts tells us, they would gather in homes. Right? They would gather in homes. And as they gathered together, it says they would break bread, they would fellowship, they would worship. So for us, it would be, as, we don't have a central meeting location. So Grace Hill is our community groups. That's pretty much what it would be. Our church is the scattered church in the homes of the people. Now, when it came to the Lord's Supper, it was custom that they would gather in the homes of the wealthier people for obvious reasons. You need a bigger house, right? Like, I know some of the homes in here that I would probably say, let's gather, right? And they would meet on Sunday evening for the purpose of celebrating the Lord's Supper. And it wasn't just this 10-minute type of thing. It was a full-blown feast. It was a meal. Right now, I'm sure many of you are anxious because you're looking at the clock, You're thinking about, I got somewhere to go. Worship should end between 12:10, 12:15. That's a very Western calculated version of how we worship. It wasn't like that back then. It was a lot more laid back. It was a lot more casual, if I can put it that way. And in fact, it's only in the West that we are so calculating with our worship before God. If you go anywhere else, they just, we're going to worship, and it goes as long as it goes. Now, this, it's just different, right? But back then, that was the case, where they would have a meal together. There wasn't this regimented order necessarily, but they would fellowship, they would worship the Lord. And then at the end, similar today, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's how it would work. It was kind of, if I can say, the culmination of the feast that they had. And that feast historically was known as was called the Agape Feast, right? Which basically means the love feast. Because the whole point of the feast was this was a visible way to show and display the love that should be happening in the Christian church. Right? As the unified body of Christ. That's why it's called communion. Community in union. As you come together as people who share a common union with Christ, you practice that by coming together and sharing a meal. I know for me, I always pictured the Lord's Supper as this short time. So even Jesus, when it says he broke the bread and drank the cup, in my head I visualize that. He's like, all right, disciples, come sit down. Let me teach you a lesson. Here's the bread. They take it. Lesson learned. Okay, now here's the cup. If you look at verse 25, we tend to forget the Lord's Supper was a supper. Look at what it says in verse 25. In the same way, he also took the cup After supper, this was not a, hey, let me hurry up and teach you some spiritual thing. It was, I want to have a last meaningful dinner with my disciples. That's what it was. And I'm going to include a new lesson for them. But it wasn't just just like, all right, let's just teach you something religious. It was, I want to fellowship with you. That's what's going on. So the Lord's Supper is definitely not less than a meaningful time of remembering the gospel and the sacrifice of Christ. But obviously, as I'm sharing in context and practice, it's meant to, to be And do much more for the church than just this me and God privatized moment of remembrance. And this is where, because of that, the Apostle Paul, he he looks at the church in Corinth and he is not happy. Imagine in today's modern terms, I'm Apostle Paul's spy at Grace Hill Church. And Apostle planted this church. And every time we do the Lord's Supper, I insta-story everything privately to him. And I'm like, hey, Paul, this is what's going on in the Lord's Supper. Basically, Paul would go on Instagram live, he'd call all the members and be like, I am not happy with you guys and here's why. And we're about to see that, which is point number two, the wrong way. Let me start with a very real illustration that could happen. So as announced, we have a welcoming lunch next week, right, that's coming up. And one of our hopes as a church is to grow to be a place that is is warm and hospitable and welcoming to newcomers. Now imagine you're not part of that lunch, but I don't know, you just happen to use the bathroom and you're walking by and you hear, oh, the, the welcoming lunch must be going on. I want to see how it is. So you walk by, and at first you're like beaming with pride for our church because you see this large beautiful banner that says like, welcome to Grace Hill, right? You are welcome here. And you're like, oh, I like that. And then you walk into the room and you take a glance and you see all the volunteers wearing these nice warm shirts with name tags and it says like, have any questions, ask me anything, I'm here for you. And you're like, oh yeah, that's my church. And then you take a closer look and you realize, wait a minute, all the members of our church are eating together by themselves, and they're eating all the food by themselves. And you look to the corner of the room, and all the new people are sitting by themselves, clueless, and they have the scraps and leftover food. And you're like, what's going on here? There should be a pastry or something. And you look, and Tom and I are in the center of that group, chopping it up. And then later you get a Facebook message. Hey, I saw you drop by the welcoming lunch. What'd you think? Wouldn't you say, I don't know what that was, But it was not a welcoming lunch. Because even though there might have been nice signage, food, and name tags, which is all the elements of a welcoming lunch, you know what was missing? Welcoming. The spirit of welcoming was absent. Because what makes a welcoming lunch is welcoming. That's how you know religiosity has taken over. When the spirit is gone and you have all the bells and whistles, it is not the church. That's a similar thing that was going on. And the Apostle Paul, he sees that in the church in Corinth. This church he loved dearly and he planted. And even though he wasn't physically there, he's hearing all kinds of crazy things. And today he specifically deals with the Lord's Supper. You see, similar to the illustration I gave, it wasn't that the church wasn't gathering. It wasn't even that they weren't practicing the Lord's Supper. It's that they were practicing it in a way that made the Apostle Paul say some pretty harsh things. Look at verse 17. He says, now I'm giving this instruction. I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Did you know it is possible for the church to gather in a way where it is worse off for you to gather and it's better that you don't gather at all? Isn't that so anti-religious? At least I came to church. Paul says, if you're going to come to church in that manner, it's better that you don't even come. That's what he's saying. Or look at verse 20. When you come together then, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Same exact thing. I don't know what you're doing, but that's not the Lord's Supper. So what's the issue and why is Paul so angry? Well, again, remember, the church is not a building. This theater is not Grace Hill. If this building blew up we went to the parking lot, the church will be just fine, right? As the great theologian Thor says, Asgard is not a place, it's the people. That's one of my favorite lines. I'm like, that's beautiful. Grace Hill is not a building, it's the people. Because the common theme throughout this whole text is this phrase, come together, in the Greek, which is better captured, is this word sunerikomai, which is the idea you don't just gather for the sake of gathering, but you're gathering intimately for a specific purpose, a.k.a. that's what the church is. It is supposed to be an intimate gathering with a specific purpose. And the reason that Paul was so upset was because the gathered church community in Corinth looked no different or even worse than the surrounding culture, right? Look at verse 18. He says, look, You're meeting for the worst because to begin, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Paul basically heard at the one gathering, the Lord's Supper feast, where that should be the very epicenter of a palpable sense of unity, division and segregation is actually what's being felt and happening. And basically in context, the way that was happening was between the rich and the poor. Here's how it played out. Back then, unfortunately, Sundays was not a day off of work. It wasn't a day off like it is today. So the rich and the wealthy who had the ability and privilege, what they would do is they would come to the gathering early, while the poor, who maybe had to work late hours or couldn't get off work because they needed to provide, they would end up coming late. Because again, they had no choice. Now the whole idea of the feast, again, was that you would come in unity to share a meal and practice this intentional communal sharing of feasting and mingling. But here's what would happen instead. The rich would just come early. They would sit themselves in the nicest house in the room. They would hang out with the people that they would have hung out with on any other day anyways. They would basically finish all their food to the point where now they're in the after party, almost to the point of being drunk before the poor would even get there. That's why Paul in verse 21 22, look what he's saying. He's saying, for at the meal, each one is just eating his own supper. So one person is getting hungry while another person is getting drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Let me illustrate this. Imagine you're in a community group of 15 people. Like really try to imagine this, okay? Ten of those people have the wealth and flexibility to work whenever they want. Just half the day. You are part of the five that has to work two jobs for no fault of your own. You're just not as well off financially. And you know that every Sunday night, our community group, we're going to gather to worship and celebrate the Lord's Supper, okay? And there's a potluck feast. So you know that. And you gather in one of the nicer homes in your community group. Sunday night rolls around. You're, you're excited and looking forward to the gathering. After a long, tiring week, you rush to the potluck after work, not even being able to shower. You know you're late. You take the best homemade dish you can afford to make. You put your blood, sweat, and tears into it because you want to love your community. And by the time you get there, the 10 people are sitting around the main dining table, stomachs full, You see empty platters of the sushi and the barbecue that they had brought because they could afford it. They're finished. Some of them are even getting buzzed and drunk. And you walk in. Now, this would be slightly messed up in any situation, okay? But if this was just any ordinary meal or weeknight, I can't biblically burden those 10 people to be like, what's wrong with you guys? I just, as a human, I would say that's messed up. But I have no biblical burden. Here's the problem that Paul had, and that I would have with that, though. Because the figurative sign hanging on the wall there is the gathering of the unified body of Christ for the purpose of unity. Like, you ever see those things where, like, you just see that banner kind of floating as a symbolic, like, wow, this is so opposite of what's actually going on? That's what Paul is hearing is happening. He gets so upset because, like, if you're going to do that, you can do that at home. If you're going to be so anti-gospel in the way you're acting in the church, I think Paul was expressing his frustration. He literally says, just stay home. Why would you bring that to the Lord's Supper of all places? Why? Because Paul knew, and you know now, the Lord's Supper is designed and instituted by God to be the ultimate display of Christian unity. We quite literally sit at the same table and we share the same meal. It's not like there's like rich people bread, poor people bread. It's not like there's like quality grape juice and like, like poor grape juice. We're all sharing the same meal and the point of that is representing unity but instead the differences that cause division everywhere outside the church, whether it's cultural, economical, preferential, instead of being dissolved by the gospel, they are still rock solid inside the church. Because the Corinthians forgot. They weren't really practicing the Lord's Supper. They were living in unchecked pride. Now, I thought about, like, why did this probably happen? Again, they had all the elements. Like, even a welcoming lunch. How could that happen? And here's why I think, and this is the common thread between then and today. I would say the issue was probably what it is for a lot of us. The Lord's Supper was just a religious practice. I'm a good Jew. This is what I should do. So I'm going to do it. And Paul saying, "You think you're better because you did it. You're worse off for having done it because it's such a contrary mode to what is actually intended." They thought they should do it. And if I, if you don't mind, pastorally speaking, I would say a very similar thing. And I think Apostle Paul would say a very similar thing to people sitting in here who think, "Well, at least I went to church," when nothing about the church is actually formulating in your hearts. There's no power. There's no meaning. And there's no formation in Christ. So then what's the proper way to practice? Well, as the heading says, the first step is to recognize there is a proper way to practice. Okay? It's, I, can't, I don't have time to get into it now, but later the Apostle Paul expressly warns, hey, there's consequence, there's danger in, in mistreating or taking the Lord's Supper lightly in an unworthy manner. So there is definitely a proper way and appropriate way to take it. Uh, In fact, there's been massive debates throughout church history regarding what even happens at the Lord's Supper, right? Like, what does it mean that Jesus says, this is my body when he breaks bread? Now, just to give you three very general views, right? Uh, The Catholic church thinks this is literally the blood and the bread is the body of Christ, right? So what they'll say is, when you come up here now and you take the bread and and the cup, that's not bread and grape juice. That's literally the body and the blood. We don't believe that, okay? But that is one view. That's why They have to really be careful who takes it because someone might accidentally get the means of salvation, right? Another view is it's purely just a memorial. It's just bread. It's just grape juice. And the power of the Lord's Supper is purely mental. As you use these symbols just to recall about the gospel, that's the power of it. Like you just remember and remember. I don't believe that. I don't think that's the case either. Uh, I personally, I think the pastors here hold to it too, most likely, but I don't want to, just in case, right? But most, most likely we hold to this at our church. It's not the literal body and blood of Jesus, but I believe that scripturally sound, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace where Jesus is legitimately present with us in a very real way when we take the Lord's Supper. I can't even fully explain it, but I think that's the case. That's what the means of grace is. In the same way that when you do a baptism, something's happening. It's not just, oh, we took a dip in the pool, right? It's not to say suddenly this water is super holy water per se, but something happens because it is a means of grace. So that being said, I think there's three postures that are important to consider when you approach the Lord's Supper. I'll do it quickly. Number one is a posture of examination, which comes straight from 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 11:28, Paul says, let a person examine himself in the way that let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Now, you might have heard this before, so I don't want to spend too much time. There's two elements of examination that you need to consider when you approach the Lord's table. One is a vertical one. The Lord's Supper is a precious opportunity and an invitation to examine your relationship with God. And for all of us, religious folk in particular, let me say, it is not an examination of how worthy you are to approach the table. I suffered for this for decades. Okay, I'm not that old actually, for a decade. Where at the Lord's Supper, I would think, oh man, did I measure up to go to the table? Am I like holy enough to take the cup? That's so contrary to the gospel. It's not am I worthy. It's actually, on the contrary, an opportunity to once again be humble enough and repentant enough to realize I've never been worthy. Wow, look at me popping off living life as if I'm good. But without Christ, I am nothing. And what a good meal to remind me of that. I'm not worthy. No one's worthy. That's the vertical aspect. And horizontally, again, why is Paul so upset? Because the vertical bleeds into the horizontal. They are inseparable. In the same way that the Bible says, what happens when you read the scriptures truly? Your love for God increases, which flows into your love for others. In other words, you need to consider how are you with the body of Christ? Could be someone as close to your spouse in your family. Could be just another member in the church. But is there something there? That the spirit's bringing to life, that irreconciled relationship, or a dispute that goes deeper than just personality difference. Those are things you need to examine. The second is humility. Again, like I mentioned earlier, the problem with the Corinthian church was they were building community in a way that was no different than the world. How do you know that you are in a worldly community? Here's how. Because you step into it and your lived experience is the highlighting of differences. You ever feel that before? Like you enter a room and immediately you just see everyone highlighting their differences. I have more money than you. I have a better job than you. I have more obedient kids than you. I'm taller than you. No one will actually say it, but that's the perceived experience. You're literally creating a social hierarchy because that's what the world does. They find commonality and identity in differences, right? That's how the whole world is. And instead of emphasizing differences of social status, economic status, gender, the Lord's Supper was this countercultural thing where it's now emphasizing not what's different about us, but what is the same about us. Our commonality and our union with Christ. When you take the Lord's Supper and you look around the room, do you really believe and feel we are all equal? No one is better than anyone else. I am not superior to anyone other than maybe I'm more sinful because I know myself better. You see, that's why the Lord's Supper changed the world. Because when a community starts to act like that, you know what starts to happen? It becomes radically attractive. Because instead of emphasizing differences of, again, all all of those things, it is only in the church through the gospel of Jesus that outside those who feel superior because of their wealth and their reputation are legitimately convicted to be brought low in Christ, which is your wealth is nothing before the cross. It is only in the situation where the lowly and the poor and the ostracized in society are convicted that genuinely in Christ they are made rich. It levels out the playing field that is so hard in the rest of the world. Because humility is a result of the gospel of Jesus obliterating human categories and unifying us by grace. And that is a catch-22 that our church is called Grace Hill. Thirdly, gratitude. One of the other names for the Lord's Supper is the Eucharist, right? Right? Less common in the Protestant church, but it literally means to give thanks. And it's biblically based on how when they would do the Passover meal, they would give thanks prior to taking it. Jesus himself in verse 24, it says, after giving thanks, he broke the bread. I personally think, and I'm speaking to myself here, there is something off if you take the Lord's Supper and then you feel bad about yourself or feel worse after than when you took it. And yet that's the experience for a lot of us. Right? Like there's this somber mood. And then there's somber music. You reflect, you take the cup, and then you're somber as you leave. You know what I say? Then why in the world do we say, let's celebrate? right? Why don't you just call it, let's contemplate over the supper? Why is it called celebrating? right? When you actually take Christianity seriously, there's a lot of things to question. Hey, today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, not be depressed. And everyone's okay with it. Well, I guess that's what the Lord's Supper is. Might be this, for most of us, this self-condemning nature that comes, maybe because maybe it's our Asian culture for a handful of us, but it is a cause for celebration because the Lord's Supper, it is an invitation of an exchange. We bring our shame, our sinfulness, our hardship to the Lord's table in any given season we are in, and instead in exchange for that, we receive not condemnation, but power Grace and a palpable reminder that, hey, despite how your life is going, you are forgiven, you are secure, and there is hope in the past of what Christ has done. There is hope because the spirit is present with you now. And there is hope because it is a proclamation that the Lord will also return. Your past, present, and future is covered. And you remind yourself viscerally of that as you take of this meal. And that should make our hearts overflow with praise and thanksgiving. Amen. At least a little more than when you came in. I had a beautiful illustration of this from one of my favorite movie trilogies, Lord of the Rings. In the third movie, The Return of the King, there's a beautiful scene. Uh, I watched it on YouTube like three times last night, and I almost cried, right? Almost. Um, It's a beautiful scene where one of the hobbits named Pippin, basically it's the scene of doom and gloom where Pippin is standing at the gates of the city that is basically about to be overwhelmed by the forces of evil. I mean, you should literally YouTube this scene. It's all the forces of evil are taking over, destructing the, what's left of it, and he's witnessing all of this, and he is hopeless, he is depressed. He doesn't, it seems like all hope is lost, and the cherry on top is that Gandalf, kind of their figure of like power. He seems like a little worm compared to the demon king that comes up, who's kind of the evil leader, and the demon king comes before them, basically about to end it all, and he says, scoffingly, like, this is the end. He's like, Gandalf, you fool. It's over. And he comes through the gate. And he's about to destroy the city. And then off in the distance, you hear like a boom. And they're like, what's going on? And then you realize it's the horns of the armies of Rohan, right? They've come from out of nowhere, myriads and myriads of soldiers to the rescue. And the story goes, they march in, defeat the forces of evil. It's not the end. And the kind of subtle beauty of it is there leading the charge is the king of Rohan. And he ends up dying to rescue Pippin and all those people in the city. Now here's where it's connecting. We're told for the rest of his life, Pippin could never hear a horn without bursting into tears. Why? Because every time he hears a horn... It reawakens the memory of his salvation and of those who died for him, namely his king. In the same way, every time we approach the Lord's Supper, you might feel like Pippin prior to the horn hopeless, helpless, like Satan's laughing in your face. What could this look like? Tired parents who are like, this is it? Those unemployed that have no clear future? The anxiety that just comes with life, those who are struggling relationally, whatever it might be, that's how you feel. The Lord's Supper is the horn of salvation in that illustration where Jesus says, Take of me. I offer you whatever it is that you lack in the moment. Some of you need peace. I'm the Prince of Peace. Some of you need assurance. Some of you need comfort. All of those things are available freely. You have access. And as we regularly take the Lord's Supper together, it is a powerful means of grace that first and foremost, we're all like that. Isn't it exhausting playing the OC game, right? Of like, everything's okay. How's you? Your life's okay too? Nobody's okay. Trust me. As pastors, we get a sneak peek of those who finally have the courage to tell us a little bit. But in my own, I understand how daunting it is to actually be honest about what's really going on. That's why therapists are making so much money right now. Because everyone's going outside the church because the place that should be the place of grace and acceptance and love and ministry, unfortunately, sometimes becomes the one place that feels the opposite of that. And the Lord's Supper is God's corrective rhythm to help us to realize we're all broken. We're all feeling helpless and yet there is the answer in the gospel of jesus christ that not only vertically through the spirit will god do that for you now but he will use the church and other people who are also being transformed by this means of grace to do that for each other now to close i want to share very practically about how we're hoping to approach this because the bible is actually very um it's clear on the principles but it's actually very open in terms of the practice So that's why churches do it differently, and that's okay. There's actually a little bit of wiggle room for the church and the leadership of the church to decide how are you going to best capture the meaning and the heart of the Lord's Supper. That's why Pastor Tom, myself, and our staff, we hated the COVID season because probably the least effective way to capture that is those, right? But we had to do it. No more, right? Today, we are taking a step forward. So number one, how we're doing it is the format. There's a lot of thought and intention behind this. Instead of individualized wafers, you see there are tables. Come to the Lord's table. After examination, you take of the bread. It's real bread, right? It's not styrofoam. And the cup. And we're hoping, to be honest, it's more work to do that. Somebody had to cut the bread. We have to set up the tables. But we'll do it because it fosters a more intentional united feeling of the Lord's Supper. So the format matters. And moving forward, we're going to constantly be praying about that. Second is this. So we have a cafeteria lunch today. It's not just a cafeteria lunch, but we are trying to, as best as we can, tie a meal on the days where we do the Lord's Supper. And there's a lot of thought behind this. Again, uh, let me back step. I think one of the greatest uh, practices of the first-generation Asian church was that they ate together every Sunday. And I never thought about that deeply growing up. But it's a very biblically-rooted practice. I remember my dad asked me, he's like, you guys meet at a high school, okay, so how do you guys eat? And I was like, we actually don't really eat. People just go out and eat on their own. He's like, how do you fellowship? How do you possibly fellowship as a church like that? And I was just quiet. And I was like, hey, Tom, <laughs> we, should have, we should have lunches. <laughs> it's so expensive, I know, but like, at least like once a month, right? It's expensive. It's hard without a building. You can think of every reason in the world where are like, oh, why would we do this? But why then would the church emphasize so much that the gathered church is in a meal? The way we hope to do this is we're going to have cafeteria lunches on the day we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, how do we practice intentionally? Again, your Monday to Saturday, hang out with whoever you want, okay? Like, do whatever you want. I'm not going to put any sort of biblical burden on you. Like, hang out with who you want to do. Do what you want to do. In fact, on even a normal Sunday, like, you want to go eat with your friends? All good. Like, we're not going to be legalistic about here, right? It's not like me and, me and Tom have, like, a Find My Friends tracker and all our members, and we're like, hey... What's going on here? But I think there's biblical warrant to say, especially in the Lord's Supper gathering, this should be the gathered unified church. So, this is the one not obligation, but opportunity to practice that. Where hey, 28 days out of the month, I eat with whoever I want. And I have this 30-minute window where I have the body of Christ that I am spiritually, theologically connected to, but I don't have many opportunities to actually connect with them. What a great opportunity. And let me say this. It is, it's very ironic to me that we eat in a high school gym because what place is more segregated than a high school cafeteria? Cool kids table, jocks table. And yet sometimes if we're not careful, that's quite literally what the church becomes. If that's the case, you know what I would say. Let's stop wasting our money on food. That's not the point. The point is not just to feed you, right? I mean, that's important too. But there's so much more that could go on, okay? And thirdly, if you want to celebrate the Lord's Supper, you have to be there. Can I give one more push to prioritize the gathering of the church? We're losing this slowly and slowly, and it's becoming almost like culturally understood and accepted that hey, church, I go and go, I go, I come and go when I please, but. God's Spirit moves and work when you are there, not when you're not there. The church needs you, and you need the church. Now, really quick as I close, a quick word for those of you who are not Christian. This might seem strange. Let me uh, emphasize, the Lord's Supper is not for you, and that's not in like an exclusive kind of way, but hopefully my explanation shows why, right? It's for those who have placed their faith and believe in this. But Paul says it's great for unbelievers to see because it's literally a visual sermon. It's a visual sermon of what the gospel is. So I'm glad you're here, and I pray that and encourage you to reflect and consider what you heard. But I also want you to consider this, and this is to everyone. Jesus, one of his most provocative but beautiful titles was, He is a friend of sinners who eats with sinners. And again, not only are we proclaiming the past and the present, we are proclaiming that our hope ultimately is that when Jesus returns, we are actually going to share in a heavenly feast. That's what Revelation says. Not just any feast, but a wedding feast, a banquet. And I had this beautiful image where at the wedding banquet, because our nerves are so used to it, we're going to go and say, excuse me, angel, where is the seating chart? We're going to go to the heavenly seating chart. And the seating chart is just going to say, table one. And on that table are not going to be the wealthy, the rich, those who got the prestige in this world. But quite literally, it's going to be opposite that. Because you're going to see a never-ending list of sinners, outcasts, the broken widows the marginalized the poor everyone that the world rejected Who jesus says i cannot wait to recline with you at table i myself will be at the center of it and the lord's supper is a preview and appetizer for that and so today jesus says until that day this is a mini invitation i have let's eat no matter where you are